Hey guys, this is Chris Vlasto, Senior Executive Producer and host of The Investigation. We're taking a break from the show for a while, but be sure to stay subscribed. We'll be back with new investigations and updates, especially as the 2020 election heats up. If you can't get enough investigation news, we've got another podcast for you. It's called Start Here, the daily news podcast from ABC News. Each day, Start Here will take you to the biggest stories with insightful, straightforward reporting. We're going to let you listen to this morning's episode right here. And if you like what you hear, search for Start Here and hit subscribe. Here's Start Here. It's Tuesday, July 30th. There's no right way to run for president, but it's awfully easy to get dragged to the left. We start here. 2020 candidates arrive in Michigan to stake their claim in the Rust Belt. People like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say the way to beat the president is just to mobilize the base. But some Democrats are concerned they're already giving these states away. The first brushstrokes emerge in the portrait of a killer. Shooting people in a mass way is a huge power surge. What we've learned about a mass shooter in California and what made him so difficult to stop. And millennials aren't indoors on their phones all day. They're outside on their phones all day. The risk is places being loved to death. The surge that had national parks overjoyed until they weren't. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. A presidential election is like a boxing match. Sometimes you're taking swings, sometimes you're weathering the storm, sometimes you're focused on body blows one by one. Every now and then, there's an opening for a big punch to land. But a boxing match is one-on-one. The Democratic primary is like the Hunger Games. And tonight, 10 candidates will face off in the first of two debates in Detroit, Michigan. You're not going to win the whole thing tonight. It's just round two, but it is very possible to lose it all. Let's tee this up for you right now. we got ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Park standing by in Detroit. We've also got Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, former chief of staff to President Obama, now an ABC News contributor. Mary Alice, you're there. What are we going to see tonight? What are you looking for? Well, I have a third metaphor for you, Brad. We're here in the Motor City, and frankly, a lot of these campaigns need quite a lot of gas if they're going to keep trekking on to the fall. Medicare for all may sound good. But it's actually not good policy, nor is it good policy. He simply wants that chaos and to distract people from the real things that they care about. I mean, there are over half of the candidates who have struggled to break through one or two percent in the polls. If somebody has a religious belief about anything, I respect that. And they're going to have a harder time justifying staying in it all if they don't get kind of a groundswell of support after these next two nights. Well, which means you got to grab attention, right? you got to say something that makes people go, wow, this person came to play. But Mayor Emanuel, you actually wrote this kind of open letter to Democrats saying, you guys screwed up this first debate. That strategy backfired on you. What's the problem? First of all, they all acted like third grade a soccer team. They chased the ball. There was nobody away from the ball. And the other thing is, you know, winning the nomination is only one step. You have to also prepare yourself and position yourself for the general election. And uh, that's what President Obama, President Clinton uh, successfully did. And too many of the candidates were taking positions on issues they think may have secured themselves uh, for the primary. On the other hand, it would foreclose being competitive among uh, swing voters in both Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, that are four swing states and with a lot of swing voters. And I'll give you one example of that, which is health care. If that's Kamala's position, she thinks you're able to keep Obamacare and Medicare for all, well, then that's 
maybe something I, I'm unaware of. I didn't know that was the case. I don't think it's possible. I mean, the idea that we would take a position that we're going to end 160 million people's private health insurance, and one of the first things we're going to do is give undocumented uh, individuals health care. Raise your hand if, gover if your government plan would provide coverage for undocumented immigrants. You missed the point that 35 million Americans are a single illness away from financial ruin. Mm. Like, why don't we focus there first? But, but well, I get that. Um, that I get that. Be... Tonight's lineup, right? I get that Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar, I bet they would agree with you there. At the center of the stage, you're going to have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Are you telling me that if you were one of those strategists, would you honestly be telling them, hey, be less liberal tonight? That is the way to win this election. Well, first of all, uh, in the recent polling, 54 percent want a uh, Democratic primary voters want a moderate versus 41 percent who don't. So first of all, you say less liberal. I would actually position myself as, look, this may not make me popular. I may get lit up on Twitter, but you need to know the truth, because I think it, the worst thing about politics is leave people disappointed because you promise one thing in the campaign. You can't deliver when you get there. And I would be the truth teller. It may not be popular with you, but I want to be honest with you. And Mary Alice, you can imagine a lot of topics tonight that will bring out these conversations, right? Healthcare, but also immigration, race, of course, as the president now takes aim at Al Sharpton in addition to Elijah Cummings and the city of Baltimore. I mean, if the question is electability of appealing to this wide audience, what is the answer from a Sanders or a Warren? I think their answer is 10,704. Hillary Clinton only lost the state of Michigan to Donald Trump by 10,704 votes. So people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say the way to beat the president is just to mobilize the base. They got organized. They built a grassroots movement. They persisted. And they changed the course of American history. If you get young African-American voters, young college students out to vote in high numbers, it's more than enough in some of these swing districts, some of these swing states that went towards the president. And the person who's not opening his mouth tonight that we will still all be talking about tomorrow, Joe Biden will have his rematch with Kamala Harris tomorrow on night two of these debates. Some Democrats worried if he emerged from that last debate hobbled, this could be a knockout blow for him or maybe a, a speed bump. I don't know what Mary Alice wants to call it. <laughs> Mary Alice Parks, Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. You got it, Brad. See you, man. There were a lot of troubling things about the mass shooting this weekend in Gilroy, California. In a split second, a festival packed with families. <laughs> turned into a terrifying nightmare. But one of the most disturbing ideas was that a shooter would cut his way through a fence and open fire at a family event, this annual garlic festival that is known for bringing people from all over of all ages. And after police surveyed a crime scene they say is several acres wide, they finally told us the ages of the deceased. A six-year-old male victim. We also had a 13-year-old female victim. And then we had uh, another male victim in his 20s. And over the last 24 hours, we've gotten a better sense of how this happened, who did the shooting before he was shot dead himself by police. What we still do not have, though, is a clear-cut motive. Let's go to ABC contributor Brad Garrett. He's a former FBI agent who profiled killers for a living. And Brad, before we get into what people think about the shooter, what do we know about him? What facts have we learned that stood out to you? He's a local resident. Santino William Logan, who was 19 years old. 
uh, white male. And I will tell you that that sort of generally fits a profile of, of mass shooters. They, they tend to be male. They tend to be white. They tend to be somewhat young. Wait, wait, really? Because my initial reaction to hearing that was to go, wow, that is so young for a, a person to be taking all these lives. Yeah, I mean, but, but think about it this way. That we've had mass shootings or attempted mass shootings by middle school kids. It's that teen to mid to late 20s that tends to be the, I guess, the more prevalent time period that these occur. And the other thing that's clearly going to factor into this investigation, Brad, is multiple law enforcement sources are telling ABC News the gunman recently made multiple Instagram posts with white supremacist messaging. He quotes this book that's popular in these circles. He criticizes people who are mixed race. And so the FBI is saying we're seeing an uptick in these types of messages among mass shooters. What does it mean? Well, it it says to me that some of this may be driven by, in his mind, this, uh, this imbalance that white supremacists believe is going on where that, that, that the white part of the population is losing ground. And if, if you want to go out and kill people in a mass way, the, you know, the motivation, the, the factor underneath that's supposedly driving you is going to vary. But look at it this way, whether it's a white supremacist, whether it's a, you know, a religious fanatic, shooting people in a mass way is a huge power surge. And it is something that they do because they feel powerless. And my guess is that this 19-year-old is going to fit some version of that profile. We found out that the rifle that this suspect used was an SKS. It was an AK-47 type assault rifle. Uh, It was purchased legally in the state of Nevada on July the 9th. Here's the thing. When you look at the festival, this seems like a place where security was doing everything right, right? They're checking bags. The police are doing everything right. There's people there. They engage the suspect in less than a minute after he starts shooting. California lawmakers say, we did everything right. We passed a law that made it illegal for a 19-year-old to buy this kind of weapon. And yet, what do you have? You have this young man who buys a weapon legally in Nevada. He cuts through the gate and he shoots nearly 20 people before anyone could actually do anything. What else is there to do? You now have in a, in a number of states with these emergency warrant situations where the law enforcement, if they have troubling comments and behavior by you, but it doesn't reach the threshold of actually being able to arrest you or charge you, they can go to a judge and get these warrants where they can temporarily seize all your firearms. And, you know, the NRA doesn't like it. They just think that's a next step to confiscation. But they have a lot of merit if they're done properly, because let's face it, a lot of these shooters, if not all of them, have some sort of precipitating behavior that sometimes law enforcement may know part of it. Sometimes they don't know about it at all because no one told them. But the point being, there there are other safeguards that we can throw into this system, but we have to be willing to do it. And details still coming out about the why here. Brad Garrett, thank you. No problem. You got it. Next up on Start Here, you got your campaign manager, you got your fundraising list. What about your poison specialist? What it's like to run against Vladimir Putin?
Yesterday, we told you about a poll that showed Americans concerned about Vladimir Putin, among others, controlling our elections. So how worried do you think Russians are about their own elections? Well, a few days ago, Moscow erupted in protests over what they said are unfair tactics used by the Putin regime. And this started over something kind of innocuous, local elections. In lots of towns, opponents of Putin's administration had been left off the ballot. So suddenly, thousands of people converged in Moscow. And just as suddenly, hundreds of riot police armed with shields and batons linked arms and marched into the crowd. This was aggressive even by Russian standards. A thousand people were arrested, some were beaten by cops. But in the day since, critics say the government's been up to something even more sinister and that Vladimir Putin's chief rival, they claim, has been poisoned. ABC's Patrick Rival is in Moscow following this all. And so, Patrick, what's happened to this rival? So the rival is Alexei Navalny, who's Russia's most prominent opposition leader. Um, he's basically Putin's most troublesome opponent. And, you know, he was actually already in jail when these protests broke out because uh, basically they arrested him ahead of them, hoping that they could stop him from taking part in them. And what happened was that one day after all these mass arrests, Navalny, who was in jail, was suddenly rushed to a hospital with what authorities told his colleagues was a severe allergic reaction. But then slowly over over the course of the day, his doctor started to say, actually, I I think he's been poisoned, that actually uh, he was exposed to a chemical agent, and this provoked this reaction. Well, and so this is a a huge name in Russian politics, right? How big of a deal is this? So, you know, if he has indeed been poisoned, then, of course, it's, it's, it's a huge deal. There is a long history of opponents of the Kremlin being poisoned. I mean, even just last year, there was a case where a prominent activist was hospitalized and almost died after being what doctors said was poisoned. At the same time, Navalny now has actually been sent back to jail because the symptoms that were basically severe swelling of his eyes, rashes all over his upper body, things that you would associate with with an allergic reaction. He's now been sent back to jail because those symptoms have basically responded to treatment with antihistamines. Wait, can we talk about the thing you said, though, that there's this history of people being poisoned if they're critics of the Putin regime? I mean, is that is that a real fear for anyone who essentially runs for office who doesn't agree with with the leadership there? Yeah, I mean, incredibly, it is really. And because over the years, it's actually become more and more frequent. You know, a long time ago, there was this poisoning in London of Alexander Litvinenko, the, the former spy who was poisoned with radioactive tea. A well, father and daughter collapsed from a suspected poisoning in the English town of Salisbury. Just in, in 2018, there was Sergei Skripal. The weapon, a nerve toxin described by authorities as a very rare agent that could only have been produced by a few laboratories in the world. But of course, you know, the poisoning of the former Russian spy Sergei Skripal with a nerve agent in the UK was supposed to also have marked a change in relations between the US and Russia. There's actually a law that Congress passed a long time ago in the 1990s that requires the US government to impose sanctions on any country that's found to have used chemical weapons. And, you know, the Trump administration is obliged legally to do that. The thing is, it's actually over a year since a deadline passed for the Trump administration to impose these sanctions on Russia. And these would be really very draconian sanctions, some of the the most that we've ever seen. And the Trump administration has just continued to ignore them, really, and has pressed through these deadlines. And increasingly, Congress is suggesting that it, if, if the Trump administration won't act, then Congress will. 
And those sanctions are supposed to affect Russian banking, air travel. They're no joke. Patrick Rival in Moscow. Thanks for breaking it down. Thanks, Brad. Right now, of course, it's road trip season. And even if you're too busy for a road trip yourself, you certainly have seen your friends on Instagram. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know here. Social media is the way a lot of modern Americans experience vacation now. You're inspired by the pictures. You plan your vacation around those pictures. Then you share your own pictures when you're finished. But what do you do when not just a photo, a physical place goes viral? And what do you do when that place is a fragile spot in nature? ABC's Maggie Rooley recently went on a great American road trip to the western U.S. She went to several national parks and premiered this piece for Nightline called Graham Canyon. And so, Maggie, you're back in a hotel room. What have you been learning about tourism and technology here? Well, Brad, the first thing it taught me was that all of those photos you mentioned seeing on Instagram of someone in solitude, um, usually there's a huge line of people lining up to take that solitude photo. It's not what it appears on Instagram. So what brought you all the way from South Korea here to Horseshoe Bend? Well, actually, I saw the, some pictures from the Instagram that about the Horseshoe Bend and also... You know, the first place we went, Horseshoe Bend, um, anyone can look it up right now. If you type it into Instagram, geotag, thousands of photos are going to pop up. It's that iconic spot where... There's the rock formation and the turquoise blue water swirling around it. Is it everything you thought it would be? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's more than that. We went there first on our road trip, and I was blown away. There was just a constant stream of people walking down to visit this location. Kind of what made us go there was the whole Instagram blow up, and we never really wanted to go there. You know, back in the day, this place started off as just kind of a... A cool local hangout. People would go watch the sunset. It had maybe 4,000 visitors a year, if that. Now, Brad, we're talking, this place almost has 4,000 visitors a day. The park ranger tells us they can barely keep up. They're worried about simple things like waste management. I mean, where do all these people go to the bathroom? These are the things they're thinking about now. The risk is places being loved to death. When you mentioned the concept of of geotagging, right? So that's where you literally select the location where you are on Instagram and then people can see where you've been, but there's literal exact coordinates of that viewpoint. So isn't that part of the issue? Like, it's not enough to hang out in Yosemite anymore. You have to go to that spot and see that site. Yeah, well, brother, the thing is, everyone is taking the same photo at a lot of these locations, geotagging the same place. So park rangers want people to branch out, to think outside the social media box. So we listened. Oh, my God. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. We went to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, uh, the much less visited area compared to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And Brad, when we were there, there was practically nobody. We ran into maybe only one other couple our entire afternoon up on the north rim. I mean, this is the kind of solitude that people are talking about. And what was funny is that one couple we ran into, they begged us not to geotag. Some people want the adventure and... uh, (laughs) We celebrate that. Mm. We just want them to be responsible. Practice safe selfies. Absolutely. (laughs) Safe selfies, people! (laughs) A lot of the park rangers were telling us how they're promoting uh, leave no digital trace. So you've heard of leave no trace before when you're hiking. That's when you bring out anything you brought in. But leave no digital trace is that you leave no digital marking of where you have been either. Well, but then what's weird to me is you can't keep people away from these spots, can you, Maggie? The whole point of conserving them is to protect them, but to also let the public appreciate them, access them. So what is the future? What is the happy medium? Yeah, exactly. And every single park ranger we met said that. We're interested in making sure that people have good access. Perhaps there's no greater example of this, Brad, than the wave. 
The Wave is one of the most visually interesting geologic formations that there is. This is the, the OG viral location for beautiful Instagram spots because I'm gonna take you back to the mid 2000s when the wave was the backdrop for windows. So you remember this beautiful formation. It was oh, literally, it looks like wave. Oh my God, like on my desktop stone. on my computer. I remember this. Exactly, you remember it. So to get to the wave, they only let in 20 people every single day, but more than 150,000 people apply every year. This place is like top-notch security. And when we went in, full disclosure, they said there were no media got special treatment. We went in just like regular people, and I was so upset about it because I really <laughs> wanted to see the wave, and I was convinced we weren't going to win. And our entire fate rested in one of those bingo cages. And Brad, guess what happened? All right. Did you get your bingo number called? And the first lucky person is number 10. You oh, that was us. Draw. Everyone in the room was really mad at us because I, I leapt up out of my chair in excitement. Oh, I forgot to mention, if you win, please stay seated. And oh, come now, up, I give it now I got embarrassed. So just you and, and 20 people then? Yeah, that's the max, 20 people a day. But now there's this controversial plan, Brad, that the Bureau of Land Management is saying they're exploring the idea of upping it to 96 people a day. It would be very challenging to put 96 people into the wave because it's a relatively small feature. I mean, you can see why conservationists are so worried uh, that if they increase this number, it could totally ruin the formation. Can we, in fact, increase the number of hikers without tipping that balance where solitude is lost. Oh, wow. Because, Brad, it, it was epic. My selfie is amazing. Yeah, that's good to hear. How else would people know how good your vacation was if you didn't have that? Maggie Ruley, doing it for the gram. Thanks for taking us off the beaten path. Thanks, Brad. And one last thing. A while back, we introduced you to the artist Lil Nas X. How are you feeling? I feel like I'm on top of the world. And a lot has changed for him in the last few months. He went from a musical unknown to the artist behind a wildly successful song, Old Town Road. He sparked debates over what makes music country versus hip-hop. Wait, that's not fair. I just thought it was uh, unjust. He locked up endorsements, awards, collabs with the biggest names in the biz. Hat down, cross town, living like a rock star. Spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar. And as all this was happening, he also posted these less than cryptic messages during Pride Month, seeming to come out as gay. But through all this, one thing has not changed. Old Town Road has now been at the top of the Hot 100 charts for 17 weeks in a row. That is unprecedented. It's longer than Despacito. It's longer than Mariah Carey, Boys to Men. It's longer than the Macarena. So Lil Nas X may be an enigma to some, a mashup to others, but it is indisputable that years from now, he'll still be known as the voice of 2019's Song of the Summer. And analysts say one of the things that keeps this song charting, you can remix this song 100 ways to Sunday. Every club, every spin class, jazzercise, I don't care, it's everywhere. Remember, if you are looking for debate analysis early tomorrow morning, we will have it for you. Hit us up on Twitter in the meantime at Start Here ABC. All these stories, of course, at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.